Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, I'm Caroline Kenyon, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to our latest edition of Bread and Butter, where I have the great indulgence of speaking to almost anyone and everyone that I find interesting in the world of food. And today our guest is a really interesting guy called Tim Coates, co-founder of Oxbury Bank. And if you haven't heard of Oxbury, you're going to find this really intriguing. Oxbury is the very first bank to specialise in the support of British farmers, which in these turbulent and changing times is an area that is particularly intriguing. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Caroline, and thanks very much for having me in that introduction. Oh, well, I say, an an absolute pleasure. Now, Tim, just just tell us a little bit about your background, because I know it's not a completely conventional banking background. You are actually from a farming family, are you not? Uh, I I am, and it's not not a particularly conventional farming background either. So um, it's sort of an interesting sort of uh, uh, life story, I guess. So, so, no, I grew up up on the family farm, uh, which is in uh, North Oxfordshire, and uh, which I now manage but but no longer live on and uh as well as that farming business um, as, as, as as you've introduced um uh, a few years ago we co-founded uh oxbury bank um specifically to support the farmers and the agricultural supply chain and the food supply chain and and with that the rural economy that was a rather kind of compressed version i'd love to just kind of dig a little bit deeper so tell me about your 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 family and and farming how that how that's been <clears throat> part of your background sure so it's fourth generation now um and it was really my grandfather who uh kind of got things going in quite a big way um he was uh, an early pioneer in the organic movement and was a founding member of the solar station back in the 40s post-war um and was very active in that movement for uh, all of his life um, how fascinating his... and, and what, what prompted him to be so engaged with it Honestly, it was actually part of it. So he was he was himself, you know, uh, a, a, a small farmer in Buckinghamshire, and um, through his other business interests, um, uh, he came into the social circle of um, of Lady Eve Balfour, who obviously was the founder of the Soul Association. So it was actually friends, um, and the conversations they were having as the, as the war was ending, being you know having been sort of co opted to dig for victory, uh, were around. Okay, well, what does you know the food production, food security in particular, look like? 
and they uh, had quite a strong uh, opinion on food security being linked to the way in which the food was produced, not just the fact that it was produced in the UK. What a wonderful background. That's an amazing heritage, Tim. So I imagine that's something that's in your mind a lot when you're doing what you're doing now. Uh, it is, although I should be clear that I don't actually run an organic farm. So um, it's not like it's a sort of full, full, full thread all the way through. And um, uh, I can, you know, hats off to my cousins who are. But um, we on on the farm in our side of the family um, are, are, are more conventional, although we've um, recently been on the journey over the last three or four years of what is now being sort of coined as regenerative. Um, so it's a, a related but but different topic. Yes. But, but fundamentally built on the same principle, which is actually the most important thing is the soil um you know from from everything the soil you know from everything comes from what the soil is doing so that's the soil health is actually the guiding principle more than uh meeting certain protocols and actually uh, a lot of the science around soil health will tell you that if you um, the, the organic conversion, as it's sometimes called, is a very complicated thing. And actually, there's uh, you, you, it's kind of you don't want to flip a switch. So actually, to restore health, soils to their sort of full health and potential requires um, a whole set of management techniques and protocols that may or may not be aligned to that organic standard. And we kind of want to have every 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 weapon in the toolkit, if you like, to put put the, put the, the farm sort of back into the, its fullest, healthiest, most biodiverse state, um, such that you know everything that we're growing and and raising. On, on farm is of the highest quality in the end but that's going to be a um, quite a journey i can imagine i mean i hear a lot of people talking about regenerative agriculture and i you know from what i've read i know that you know if you eat a carrot now it has far fewer nutrients than it would have had if you'd eaten it 50 years ago so i guess that's where you're engaged yeah absolutely it's that kind of thing i mean we can get into some detail on that if you like but that's that's a really good example actually um and that because that has so many implications in terms of you know the concept of quality over quantity and of course the big the big kicker in everything to do with food the price the affordability and the and the access for everyone to to high quality food absolutely no completely critical so so tell us so there's there's young tim growing up on his uh, family farm which i believe is the cotswolds yeah, so we're just on the just on the very boundary of the uh, area of outstanding natural beauty. So yes, the northwest Oxfordshire, and I suppose yeah. But, uh, in, again, this is not a atyp- atypical of fi- family farms, but uh, you know, initially there's not necessarily an obvious role as one's growing up in the other interests. You know, uh, plenty of plenty of dog's body jobs over the years, but actually uh, coming into thinking about uh, ed- you know further further education and career, the opportunities clearly lay elsewhere. Like many uh, in the UK, um, drawn to professional services drawn into the City of London, drawn into finance. And after doing various roles in sort of consulting, I found myself at the uh, financial regulator, what was then the FSA and now is the FCA, um, and did a, did a number of roles there, but the largest part of which was actually working on the authorization of new banks, which is of which there have been quite a few in recent years as, as technology has enabled that, as the regulatory regime has enabled that, um, and the entrepreneurial spirit post the financial crisis has enabled all of that. So having been part of that sort of uh, wave, but very much from an, an insider's seat, uh, seeing lots of uh, others come and attempt that and some succeed and some not. At the same time, uh, in, the, in the later years doing that, I was having conversations with my family back at the farm about succession and what that meant. And in, in deciding that I was going to, you know, go back to the farm and start running that. I also was also sort of looking around for something else to do. Uh, something else to do got a little out of hand, uh, as I spoke to some other people who also thought that the time had come for a dedicated agricultural bank. And um, well, here we are. <laughs> when, when was it crystallised where you all looked at each other and punched the air and said, by George, we've got it? Do you know, I wish I could, I could narrow it down to one particular moment. 
I think it was a series of conversations and um, comings together of uh, which sort of encapsulates sort of the individuals who got involved, really, who and we've all sort of knew each other through slightly different circuitous routes. I think I think the key light bulb moment was then sort of a little after we kind of said, let's let's sort of put this down as a plan or a page kind of idea without actually considering what we knew for as the facts going into it was we would be able to start uh, a new bank with relevant uh, technology and operating model that could be low cost and we could get it moving fast and the reason we believed that it was important to get it into the agricultural sector was twofold one was typically family farms and they are often family farms but if they're not they're still small to medium you know sized businesses here in the UK producing you know the vast majority of our food this is not a corporate food system uh, at the primary producer level generally with one or two exceptions and all SME banking has been generally uh, badly treated by the incumbents over the last 20 30 years really has been it's all been going the wrong direction and so so the provision for good banking for farming businesses was was already under threat so we really wanted to put a relationship model back in place i.e experts who talk to farmers so uh, all of our uh, you know relationship management team uh, and the people that support them in our credit teams and otherwise many many of them are also from family farming backgrounds or other farming backgrounds um not just in the uk but we actually we have people from who've, who who have had their fa- their farming experience from overseas working with us uh, and really bringing back the importance of a good quality informed and knowledgeable conversation uh, in banking provision. The light bulb moment sort of came out of the back of that, which is, okay, well, actually, farming is a bit more complicated than the average business. And most of that's to do with cash flow management. Uh, and, and this is really intuitive, which is, you know, if you, if you sow crops in the autumn, or even in the spring, if you're waiting through to harvest, there's, there's quite a lot of cost overhead before you get to, uh, you get to get to being able to sell your crop, uh, obviously, involving rearing animals that can involve even longer timeframes. It's all about cash flow management. And again, with the technology system that we wanted to build to support our relationship management, i.e. computers doing what computers are good at and people doing what people are good at, we also realized we could build really bespoke, innovative products that would help smooth that cash flow problem for farmers. And that's sort of our sort of USP, our selling point is actually we can we can construct the kind of lending facilities for a small farming business that you would have to be a multi-million corporate to get from any other bank. I can imagine that went down very well when you started to go out and talk to people about it. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, it's not just at the, at the farmer level that we've got a really strong reception. It's the, it's the wider agribusiness community in the UK. It makes a lot of sense in terms of the supply chain as a whole, because uh, gen- generally what had happened was that uh, more and more of the supply chain was taking on the costs inherent in food production because of the lack of available credit from the financial sector. So we generally got a good reception at sort of every component part of the of the agri agri food supply chain, which means that we work with you know the companies that supply farmers, we work with the companies that um, buy from farmers um, to continue to innovate on the products we uh, are able to put into the market and essentially use all of the financial know how to you know get the financial uh, get the food supply chain working as efficiently as possible, which you know is is aiming at the, the goals that we all want, which is affordable food of high quality uh, and readily available. That's so fascinating. So tell me, I mean, I have many, many friends who are farmers. I love them dearly, but let's all acknowledge that farmers tend to be quite change averse. How did you go about getting your first customers? 
I think I might challenge you a little bit on that. I think it might come across as change averse, but I think uh, there's there's a few examples out there of, well, there's more than a few examples of things where actually farmers are, are readily early adopters of really quite sophisticated technology as well. You know, GPS guided tractors, pretty, you know, if it's affordable and can make sense, early adoption, because it makes very good sense to, to apply in the field, for example. Uh, likewise, I think actually um, the farming sector was had high rates of mobile phone penetration back in the 90s because of the obvious use case. So with those sort of things in mind, uh, we also think we've got some obvious use cases and that uh, enables our, our ability to go into, uh, uh, into, into the market and, and sell what we've got. And that, uh, now it's not all just down, down to that. It's also down to those, say, those partnerships we've had with other actors in the supply chain. So we like to partner with the sorts of trusted agribusiness that farmers already know and trust. We're working yes, we work with them way together. To do it. Exactly. We work with them together to ensure that we're part of a, of, of a solution. So actually, it's something if a farmer is already considering doing something new and or doing something they've always done, but wanting to make that more efficient from a financial perspective, we're then there as an option that they may or may not choose to take up, but we, we, we've got a financing solution for almost every purchase uh, and every project that may be considered on farm. Well, I think you, you must have launched at, at a time when farmers were looking for support and um, guidance because, um, you know, one is loath to mention the B word, but obviously Brexit has really upturned British agriculture on its head, hasn't it? Uh, I think what it's done is create huge amounts of uncertainty now i think farmers are very tolerant of uncertainty i mean this is a this is a group that generally is you know always has to battle with the whims of mother nature and the weather but the policy landscape and the uncertainty that created yeah is not helpful in aggregate i would say what i suppose it does do is focus the mind on certain topics that have kind of been perennial problems in farming like succession like understanding the where you fit in the supply chain and considering the other thing which we probably should get onto and talk about is um is, is climate resilience of course so actually that uncertainty also from that comes focus now i wish it wasn't quite so uncertain and the government seems to kind of do rolling uncertainty i would say i'll describe it as which is they kind of give sort of every now and then a bit more information but it tends to create more questions than answers and given that we're supposed to be in a new policy regime by as early as 2024, I think there's a lot of people who would say, yeah, I really don't know what the world's going to look like in 2024 from a policy context, let alone anything else. So definitely uh, that, that Brexit word, if, if, if indeed it's the uh, the genesis of that problem, it is a real factor. It may, of course, and you know, all politics aside, it may, of course, be an opportunity. We may be able to set up a, a, a policy context that's very uh, UK-specific, and of course, this is the, the other challenge of now is that it's a devolved matter. So the policy context is different in each of the four nations. That is extremely uh, and, complicated. And, and, and they're all moving at different paces. We're doing our best to ensure that we're aligned to, to all of those changes. Um, and of course, there are those um, producers who are out there, farmers out there who are, who are, who are, who are straddling borders. And I imagine that they've, they've got a particular, particular form of chronic headache as a result of that. But nonetheless, yes. I think, I, I, nonetheless, I think, you know, again, policy context again not unknown in farming you know capital was always revisited on a sort of seven-year basis and there was often changes and sometimes they were quite sharp and quite disastrous as well so i think that i'll go for the jury's out on whether the the policy context is there it's uh, it's all about delivery and i would say so i'm in the i'm in the sustainable farming incentive pilot which is the sort of sort of lowest level of the what's called the environmental land management scheme so as a farmer i'm in the in the pilot in that i would say having now 
participated in that. When I think about things that are under that banner, when I need to communicate with DEFRA or the RPA, its delivery body, that is a vastly improved relationship than how it was previously. And I don't know whether that's resourcing, caliber of individuals or or what, but they're doing something right there if only they could do it right across the whole piece. Mm, very interesting. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you, Tim, is, is you know, how your your clients and, and you yourself as a farmer are considering this the the shift in emphasis from you know being farmers being food producers to being custodians of the environment, which obviously has implications for food security, doesn't it? Personally, I'm rejecting the premise of the question, uh, insofar as I don't think it's a it's a binary point of view. And I know that that's the sort of debate that quite often likes to get whipped up, which is, you know, is it food or wilding, rewilding, just nature? I think what we know needs to happen is that we have to have high quality food production occurring in a nature friendly way, nature positive way. And those are, those are dangerous terms because they could mean anything to anyone. But fundamentally, food security is a biodiversity topic. So the the greater the biodiversity, the more resilient the soils, the landscape, and you know everything on, on which food production, whatever one is producing, depends. So as a result of that, I would say it's the biosecurity that leads to the food security element. Uh, That's so a I, very I, I, I interesting re- reply. Yeah, so I reject the fact that you go one way or t'other. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's just, um, it, it's it's got to be the integration. And I think that's, uh, that's the, the frame of mind that I would encourage everyone to look at it uh, within. And I think there's some really interesting initiatives that are now coming out, uh, both, well, I say both from government, so to some extent from what the government is doing under ELMS, but but also actually I think sub- starting to out of the market, starting to spring out of the regenerative movement. And I think what's happening, I think across farming in aggregate, is collaboration is back on the table. Uh, in a way that I think it hadn't been when the focus uh, had been about uh, chasing yield and commodity cropping, or in fact, commodity produce, production of anything. And I think that's the that's that's the bit that's now changing almost regardless um, of the policy context. Uh, and I think from that come really interesting initiatives around knowledge sharing, machinery efficiency, labour efficiency, uh, and an approach to integrating a greater degree of biodiversity in food production that actually gives me real hope about being able to continue to to meet the goals of affordable, high quality, readily available food. Well, that's very encouraging. Just, just I mean, there's so many more questions I want to ask you, Tim, and obviously we haven't got unlimited amounts of time, sadly. What do you feel about, you know, trade deal with e.g. Australia, where um, there's a 15-year window where uh, our meat producers can um, continue to produce meat to our high standards, but by the end of 15 years, the the uh, arrangement is that uh, Australian uh, livestock farmers will have, I think, um, unlimited access to our markets where they don't produce meat to our very high standards. How do you see that affecting British farming? So, yeah, there's a, obviously a sort of doom and gloom scenario in that. I think the likelihood of that is potentially low if in the window the right things happen. So you've already described the really good start we've got, which is the, you know some of the highest standards of animal welfare in the country, I mean, so in, 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 in the world that we have in this country. 
And so what, 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 what needs to happen in the intervening period before there's the risk of uh, lower, you know, lower production uh, standards uh, being uh, dumped on the UK market? Uh, it's consumer education. And I think farmers and the related organisations, levy boards and the like, need to stand up and communicate actually how well, you know, how, how, how well food is produced in this country from an animal welfare perspective, but also from, as I've just been talking about, actually the, the existing uh, biodiversity in UK food production uh, and all of the initiatives that are improving that day on uh, day on day. And actually, it's, it's it, you know, consumer demand will drive all of this. And it's not just the price mechanism. It's about education and information. It's about knowing the fact that actually food produced here is better for you. And yes. it's better for the environment. Like that's that's the thing, because it's it feels like it's not they're not they're not you know, they're not highly substitutable goods, actually. You know, that if you take beef, you know, British beef is different. And I'm not I'm not actually trying to particularly sort of down downplay Australian beef necessarily. I'm just trying to say that fundamentally it's gonna come down to customer choice, consumer choice when they, they are making food purchases. And that's a complicated, complicated battle. It's gonna be very, very hard for farmers to see the benefits in the price mechanism because the retailers will be controlling that as they have always done but but it's on the farmers i think a little bit to be willing to say do you know what i'm producing something really high quality here and to, as an industry to keep putting that message out from from the individual farmer up through into the into the various organizations that represent um food production here in the uk into the into the pro- food processes and then actually to the retailers and i think if you can get, get that groundswell of movement amongst that group the you know british consumers will 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 act the uh, the government's own um food security report which came out at the end of the last year you know has made it pretty clear that actually that's that's pretty much the it, these these matters are at the top of the list about what people people consumers care about when it comes to to food so there's actually a really high trust in the quality of british food um which is great obviously but there's actually then the issues that that, that are at the top of the list uh, are animal welfare for example um and concerns over the environmental impact obviously uh, that, that's linked to that but also concerns for you know provenance where's it coming from and what's the narrative behind it so and again that's starting from i think sometimes we forget about how positive the landscape is we we have an incredibly resilient food supply chain um you know not that it, things like covid and some of the impacts that have come from that uh, have shown where the disruptions and the, and the fragility do lie so you know things like the um the issues around you know the use of carbon dioxide and the implications if there's not enough enough of that being used in the food supply chain and in the impact on the on, on the pig industry for example but fundamentally it's a, you know even in the face of a global pandemic and all of the challenges through to it everyone everyone had nearly everyone had access to food and they had access to affordable food there were there were intermittent issues no one's going to deny that but fundamentally we're in a good stead and so if you realize that even under the severest stress the food industry including farmers as primary producers was able to meet that challenge then actually learning from that experience and saying okay how do we communicate now the strengths of the industry the strengths of the you know the entire food supply chain and everyone working together in that to communicate that i think that you know in 15 years time i don't think there'll be a, a, a price a huge price differential necessarily between you know let's say again beef from the uk or beef from Australia, and I think if it's if it's a very small differential, then you know, with all of that power of of education, then I think people will make the right choice. 
Very interesting indeed, Tim. Thank you. I think it would be remiss of me on a day like today. I'm just very mindful of, you know, international events that are rolling on apace. And, you know, Russia is poised on the borders of Ukraine. And of course, Ukraine is a massive food producing country, possibly one of the largest in the world, I believe. What kind of implications would that have for feeding Europe or even Britain if there is a war in the Ukraine? Oh, gosh, I wish I could. I wish I knew the answer to that, not just so I could give a clever one, but so I, because it's obviously it's quite an important one in so many contexts. Um, but I, I, absolutely, you know, that the, the Ukraine is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a vast producer of um, uh, cereals in particular and other um, other agricultural goods. Uh, and it, these are all global markets. So actually, I think it will be the it's the other implications. So I think um, for, and so what I mean is, I don't think it's the, it's the primary crop that is going to be the impact into the food supply chain. It is, it's the, it's the disruption around energy. And that's coming again off the tailwinds of increasing energy prices anyway. And so if I think about, for example, I would expect, you know, we've had some of the fastest increases in the, in the input costs for, for farming in terms of fuel, fertilizer, chemicals that are used in, in farming. Uh, and we've obviously mentioned about the disruptions to the CO2 supply chain as well. I'd say all of that is under threat at further at further uh, risk of higher cost. Fundamentally, I think the provision can be there, but, uh, but, at, but at very high cost. And I think that's where the pressure will come rather than seeing the pressure being reflected in necessarily much higher output prices in terms of, you know, say the, say the global wheat price, because there are so many other global aspects to that there's a you know the, the the brazilian crop for example is looking inc- you know healthier than normal there's good 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 data coming out of western europe and out of canada and the us for example so the the, the overall global picture in terms of provision of grain let's say is uh, is relatively stable despite what's happening with russia and ukraine i think it's going to be further inflation uh, on on primary inputs that are, are derived from from the energy from energy, so the natural gas, oil, etc. That's where um, that is, and all of the implications for uh, on farm fuel, fertilizer, and other chemical needs is is, is where this is all going to be felt uh, if it escalates, which it seems to be doing sadly. Tim, thank you so much. That's a really fascinating answer to my question. Well, we'll just have to see how events unfold, won't we? And let's hope that they are more peaceful than bellicose, but one can't tell at this stage. Tim, thank you so much. I am delighted to have heard more about your journey towards the founding of Oxbury Bank and what its exciting ambitions are. I'm sure it's for certainly for national domination, then perhaps global domination. Do you have plans to extend beyond the borders of Britain? We do. Uh, we have, they're not, um, you know, set in stone. Um, what we want to do is take the lessons from a really strong start here in the UK and uh, assess where best to put that knowledge and experience into other markets. And that's uh, going to be technology led. You know, having having built our own financial technology, our, our own banking systems, and and and, and products ourselves means that we have the ability to deploy that uh, you know almost anywhere and I think that's what gives us a real interesting opportunity to again to sort of double down on some of our core values of working in partnership so so you know I think I think it's more likely that Oxbury will be sort of the engine of transformation in other uh, jurisdictions in terms of their agricultural and food banking rather than necessarily us rushing off and setting up and I'm picking it at a random Oxbury Bank Australia for example you know I think um, 
I think it's more likely that we'll be working to uh, to ensure that the um, you know the food supply chains and farmers in in other in other countries in the world um, can can you know improve in the way that we envisage. Um, uh, we're doing for for the UK supply chain now. Wonderful. Well, speaking as a huge supporter and fan of British farming, I wish you the very best of luck, and uh, look forward to maybe you coming back on and giving us an update in a year or so. We'd be very happy to do so. Thanks, Caroline. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.